2: New Hampshire might seem like an outlier in reliably blue New England, but voters there sure sound like those in the rest of the country.
3: I think we need a change, but I don't really enjoy any of the candidates, which is kind of sad in 2016 that this is what we've come up against.
2: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John
1: Dankosky. We'll look at our region's political DNA. One by one, these formerly Republican states of New England flip to becoming first battleground states and then solidly democratic states.
2: We'll also talk about states striking the balance between renewable energy and natural gas.
4: The challenge for today is how to continue that progress in decarbonizing the grid while maintaining reliability. And we'll meet a woman on a little walk to Maine.
5: She dropped a postcard in the mail to her children. Saying, when I said walk, I meant I'm hiking 2,050
2: miles. The story of Grandma Gatewood and the AT. It's next.
3: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region. With support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: Coming up, one state pulls the plug on pipeline expansion. Does it signal a big change toward renewable energy in the region? But first, New England is seen as reliably Democratic. Along with New York, it's part of a big blue blob in the upper right-hand corner of those election maps we've seen all too much of. But as we'll hear, it wasn't always like this. And as we know, there's one state with an infamous independent streak that's always been a little bit different. A poll by WBUR in Boston taken less than a week before Election Day shows Republican Donald Trump pulling slightly ahead of Democrat Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. As reporter Anthony Brooks found, state residents are pretty evenly split.
6: At a Trump rally in Manchester last Friday, Christian Carpino of Nashville explained that the issue of honesty is why he will vote for Trump.
5: Because uh, he's not Hillary, honestly.
6: <laughs> and why, what's your concern about Clinton?
5: Dishonesty after dishonesty, lies after lies. Benghazi, she killed four Americans, lied about that. It's lies after lies.
6: Clinton's critics, including Trump, often cite the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, Libya, among the reasons to distrust her. In fact, the definitive account of the attack by the House Select Committee did not conclude that then-Secretary of State Clinton was responsible for the deaths of four Americans, or that she could have saved them.
1: I
3: think she's honest. She's for the people.
6: This is Bretta Carrigan of Manchester, a Clinton supporter who was shopping at the Mall of New Hampshire earlier this week. Kerrigan says the latest news about Clinton's emails didn't influence her at all. And she says it was the debates that convinced her to vote for Clinton.
3: She does a lot for children. She always has. She knows the routine, her husband. She's been there, done that. I just believe in her. And I think Trump is fake. <laughs> He's a womanizer. He discriminates women, and I really dislike that, especially when you want to run for president.
6: Our poll found almost 70% believe Trump has done more to divide people than bring them together. Just over 50% feel that way about Clinton. Kimberly Charette from Londonderry, New Hampshire, who was also at the Mall of New Hampshire this week, is among the many New Hampshire voters disillusioned with both candidates. Charette says as a Republican, she'll vote for Trump, but not with an abundance of enthusiasm.
3: Truly, I have to go party line, so I'm going Republican. I think we need a change, but I don't really enjoy any of the candidates, which is kind of sad in 2016 that this is what we've come up against.
2: That story from WBUR's Anthony Brooks. While the Granite State seems like an outlier, political scientist Andrew Smith says, it's really the last state in a regional shift from Republican to Democratic that's been happening across decades. We invited Andrew Smith into the studio to learn about how and why New England's political DNA is changing. He teaches political science at the University of New Hampshire and directs the UNH Survey Center. He's also the author of the book, The First Primary, New Hampshire's Outsized Role in Presidential Politics. Andy Smith, welcome to Next. Thank you very much for having me. So let me start with this. In our first episode on our show, uh, we talked with the author of the book, American Nations. His name is Colin Woodard. And he makes the case in this book that the culture and the politics of the various geographic areas of the US are are really made up by the people who initially settled there. Uh, Here in New England, for instance, the Puritans set up really small scale town government with the idea that this kind of democracy would protect society from greed and selfishness of of any individual. And it's, it's hung on here over the many centuries. Woodard argues that Yankeedom, which is what New England is, is the part of the country where there's the most comfort in government being able to possibly do things right. Do you basically agree with that, that there's something in the New England uh, ideal that makes us think government's more or less a good thing?
1: Well, I I would maybe take uh, issue with the origins of that because the Yankeedom is actually an area where we didn't really think um, government was going to do so much. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the land of the Adams Brothers, uh, who certainly weren't advocates of a strong government uh, uh, to, to the extent that they thought government was there to do good things. This was also the part where Thomas Paine was talking about government being the uh, mm-hmm. uh, best uh, a necessary evil and at worst an intolerable one. And power vested in local governments, not so much because they thought those governments necessarily could do things better, but they didn't want to have power centralized. So it was that centralization of power, I think, that they that, that Yankees were concerned about. And that's why we have the kind of structures that we see, the town meeting structure in northern New England, the greater power in uh, local governments. Uh, that you see in other places. But we've seen that change over time, in large part because of the, the growth of cities. And the cities in New England now are, are places where you've got pretty large-scale government. And it's not that small, old New England style of government as much anymore.
2: Yeah, I talk a, a bit more about those changes and, and how that has affected
1: maybe parts of northern New England that haven't been at least yet quite so urbanized. Well, I think the most fascinating thing about New England is that this is the birthplace of the Republican Party, arguably one of three birthplaces of the Republican Party, uh, and Exeter, New Hampshire, specifically. New England has been the bedrock core of the Republican Party for almost a century and it really wasn't until the 1940s and 1950s you started to see that split up in, in largely because of the uh, immigrant groups into some of the cities of New England for example Italians and Portuguese in, in uh, Rhode Island, in um, in, K- in Connecticut, you saw uh, arrival of Italians as well. And But Massachusetts, and particularly in Boston, with the arrival of heavy numbers of, of Irish and, and Italian immigrants, that started to break up the dominance of the Republican Party. And then you need this domino effect that one by one, these formerly Republican states of New England flipped to becoming first battleground states and then solidly democratic states. Rhode Island really went in the 1930s and 40s, Massachusetts in the 1950s and 60s, Connecticut in the 1970s, Vermont in the 1980s, Maine in like the 90s and 2000s, and New Hampshire is kind of the last of those dominoes to have fallen. It now is a democratic state in presidential years. Still, uh, uh, Republicans can win in midterm years. And that's happened largely because of migration into the states. Um, so the, the initial migration were those immigrant migrants coming from uh, other parts of Europe. But then there's that secondary wave of migration that happened in the, uh, starting in the 1960s and 70s. But it's continued on. So the reason that Connecticut, for example, became such a solidly democratic state was that Democrats who formerly lived in New York— Uh, And New York City, moved into the Connecticut suburbs. And they didn't change to Republicans when they got to Republican Connecticut. They stayed Democrats. And their kids, by and large, stayed Democrat. Uh, That similar sort of pattern happened in Vermont, where you had— People fleeing New York City and the areas around New York in the 1960s and 70s trying to get into a more rural lifestyle. But those were largely Democrats from the uh, New York environment. They moved up to um, Vermont and they made that into essentially a Democratic stronghold. Uh, and uh, New Hampshire has been impacted by migration as well, but not to the same extent because migrants into New Hampshire have come both from Massachusetts, but also from uh far outside of the region from New York, New Jersey, um, uh, Pennsylvania, and so forth. So they've come longer distances into New
2: Hampshire. Maybe you can talk a bit about that, about uh, New Hampshire uh, being this political outlier in a, in a region that's
1: so blue, that's leaned so mm-hmm. far hard to the left. Let me start by saying that New Hampshire is very different than all of the other New England states in that it has a huge amount of um, demographic turnover Uh, between elections. So migration into New Hampshire is very similar to what you see in states like Florida or or Nevada, uh, much less like the other New England states. So in New Hampshire, between 2008 and now, about 30% of our potential voters didn't live here or were not old enough to vote just eight years ago. And between 2000 and 2008, that was very similar as well. Uh, So in the last 16 years, since 2000, about 50 to 60% of the people who can vote are different people than they were in 2000. And it's very interesting about where they came from and how that impacts the election. Now, there's a feeling among the old Republicans in New Hampshire that it's those people who moved across the border from Massachusetts that are making this state into a Democratic state. But that's really not the case. It seems that the people from Massachusetts who have been moving into New Hampshire have done so largely because housing is cheaper here, taxes are lower. And the third reason that they've given us in polls is that there aren't as many Democrats and liberals in New Hampshire as there are in Massachusetts. And they've moved largely just over the border into the southernmost towns in New Hampshire. And those towns are now the most Republican and most conservative parts of the state. It's people that have moved here from the other regions of the Northeast largely, but also some from the South and the West, who've come here to work in the high-end jobs in New Hampshire that uh, were Democrats in those states and have stayed Democrats here and the former Republican bedrock uh, counties like Carroll County up in the mountains and and, uh, Merrimack County in the center part of the state and Grafton County in the central part of the state are now becoming fairly solidly Democratic counties because the people who've moved here are what demographers call amenity migrants. They're moving into the mountains for that vacation home or a retirement home. And they were Democrats and wealthy Democrats in the the states that they moved from and they largely stay that way here. So we've seen that the people that are moving into New Hampshire are far more likely to be Democratic than the old Yankees, uh, the old Republicans who are either dying off or or retiring out of the state. But it's the people moving here from Massachusetts that have kept the state as Republican as it still is. Without that migration from Massachusetts, New Hampshire would be a solidly blue state. I I get that those amenity migrants are coming to live in the mountains, but I, I would guess that the low taxes don't hurt either. Ah, uh, doesn't help doesn't hurt too much if you are uh, if if you if you run a small business out of your house, if you're a consultant or something like that, uh, no income tax is a a big lure. Talk mm-hmm. about the role of independence, especially
2: in in a presidential election year when, it seems as though everything's so polarized, and we're talking about uh, Democrats and liberals on one side, and conservatives and Republicans on the other side. And there's so many people who are stuck here right in the middle. What what impact does it have, especially in, in states like New Hampshire and Maine, when there's so many independents?
1: Well, I, I should say first off, it's one of the myths about New Hampshire is that we call um, we have three ways that you can register to vote in New Hampshire. You can register as a Democrat, a Republican, or undeclared. And we unfortunately call those people who register undeclared independents. And there's a lot of value to being registered undeclared. You're not publicly identified as being affiliated with a party. You don't get the phone calls and fundraising appeals that you get uh, if you were a Democrat or Republican. Uh, And when presidential primary time comes around, you can vote in either primary. Uh, But most of those people who are registered undeclared are really either Republicans or Democrats, and they vote consistently Republican or Democrat. So the the big block of the undeclareds, which we refer to as independents, about 40-so percent of the electorate, they're really not politically independent. I think that you can understand that by if you look at the neighboring state of Massachusetts, where about 55 percent of the voters there are registered unaffiliated Um, they're not really seen as independents in Massachusetts. And we don't think of Massachusetts as an independent state. Maine is very similar to New Hampshire in that the the independents there still are, by and large, either Republicans or Democrats. And those people who are truly independent don't follow politics too much, and they generally don't vote. So it's more of a um, uh, the idea of this big block of independents that can swing an election is more of a myth than an actual reality. So do we take our democracy more seriously here in New England than the rest of the country? I mean, do we turn out to vote in, in higher numbers? Absolutely. We do turn out in very high numbers, um, it's some of the highest in the country. Uh, only the upper Midwestern states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa have uh, similar high numbers in turn- percentages of turnout. But I think that has a lot to do both with, uh, as you mentioned, the background of people here uh, in that we have governmental structures that... Uh, really focus on uh participant involvement either in um, town meetings or local elections but more importantly in local boards and uh a- a lot of the work that's done in communities is done by volunteers, but the, it's also tied with higher levels of education and higher levels of income because there is a very strong correlation with that. And then the final reason is that especially for states like New Hampshire, um, where you've it's been a battleground state in presidential years for at least 20 or 30 years, Uh, is that there's a tremendous amount of money dumped into those campaigns, and uh, the more money you put into the campaign, typically it it drives voter interest up whether they want to be interested or not, and they usually show up at the polls. So
2: what do you think of the outsized influence that New Hampshire has on national politics? I mean, people in New Hampshire I talk to say they never want to get rid of the first in the nation primary, but a, a lot of the rest of the country says, look, you've got this small state, it's pretty rural. It's very white. As you said, it's pretty wealthy. It maybe doesn't represent the whole rest of the country in the way some other states do. Do you think it's a good thing
1: overall for American politics and government that New Hampshire has this big influence? It it, it, it is it does have an outsized role, but the, the way I would push back on that is to say— New Hampshire got it by accident. We wanted to keep it because it's what people know about New Hampshire. And there's no, there's no guarantee that any other structure or system would do a better job than New Hampshire. And the, both political parties and candidates within the political parties understand the current system. They know it. They know how to win in a system like that. And if there's anything political parties want to do is to be able to win and to be able uh, to know what to expect coming up. And if we change the structure significantly, as happened after the 1968 um, McGovern-Fraser reforms, uh, there's no there's no n- real way to predict what's going to happen. So the Democrats were quite shocked after the McGovern-Fraser reforms to get George McGovern and Jimmy Carter as their first two nominees, who were not people that were really friendly to the insiders of the party.
2: You know, I'll argue the other side that I did before and, and say— Because New Hampshire isn't purely a blue state and not purely a red state, there is something valuable there. I mean, we we talked to a reporter at uh, New Hampshire Public Radio a few weeks ago who was watching the Senate race in that state, and she said that it's a, a race to the middle. And that's something that in some ways, I guess, is pretty refreshing because so much of our politics is so polarized that New Hampshire feels like a place where you can Occupy some middle ground
1: territory and actually have it pay off politically. I think that is the case because it's fairly evenly balanced. And I think one of the other things that we haven't touched on here um, about New England in general, about uh, New Hampshire specifically, is how unreligious this part of the country is. Of the t- Of the least religious, the 10 least religious states in the country, all six New England states are in that group. And New Hampshire is number two following Vermont. Uh, so those socially those uh, social issues, which have been so divisive in other parts of the country, generally aren't that big of a deal here. So for example, in New Hampshire, on the issue of abortion, even likely Republican primary voters are more pro-choice than the country is as a whole. So you don't see that sort of division along those um, social issue lines. the The divisions tend to be just on traditional party lines and By the time you get to this part of the election, it's basically, I don't like you because a Democrat. you're a Democrat. And the other person says, well, I don't like you because you're a Republican. And that's about the depth of some of the discussions. And I should also ask you, you
2: have a very important Senate race and a very important governor's race in New Hampshire Mm -hmm. that people haven't spent as much time talking about as perhaps they normally would because of the outsized
1: influence of this very contentious presidential race. Well, certainly the presidential race is dominating everything. And that's that's typical in, in presidential years. But the Senate race we have between the incumbent Kelly Ayotte, um, a Republican, and current governor, Maggie Hassan, is going to be probably the most expensive race in the country. It looks like there's going to be well over $100 million spent on that race. And considering there's going to be only be around 700,000 voters, you know, you're well over $100 per vote. That has sucked whatever political oxygen is left after the presidential race right out of the room. So the race for governor, and we have a governor election every two years here, the race for governor has been largely an afterthought to the point where uh, in our most recent poll, 23 percent of the voters didn't know who they were going to vote for, in part because one of the candidates, and he's the leading candidate, is unknown to more than half of the voters in the state. Even in politically crazy New Hampshire, they still don't know who the candidates are, huh? Absolutely. Can't tell the players without a program. <laughs> Andy Smith, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. New Hampshire voters may take elections seriously, but a few weeks back, we met one granite Strater who definitely doesn't take them too seriously. Chris Owens hung a sign reading official New Hampshire voting booth on an outhouse at his farm stand and invited folks to cast their ballots for Trump or Clinton in one of the two toilets inside. Well, the results are in and they're definitive. Here's NHPR's Sean Hurley.
7: Chris Owens sits beside an outdoor wood stove at the back of his farm stand. At his feet, his cat, Sid Vicious. On his lap, a box full of ballots freshly collected from his outhouse. For the last month or so, anyone who stopped by the organic farm stand was handed a ballot with the presidential candidates listed and urged to head for the outhouse to cast their vote.
3: You know, some of them would just come and vote, but they'd have a good time and there was a lot of laughing and people getting together and yelling at each other for voting for the wrong person. But it was almost all good natured. We had three serious fights, not fist fights, but verbal fights.
7: And now, a week before the election, the outhouse vote is being tallied.
3: Here we go. Clinton, Trump, Johnson, Bernie, Trump, 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 jeezum, Hillary. Who's jeezum? Jeezum is my trying to not say a bad word. I'm just saying jeezum.
7: Before the count, Owens, who's a Clinton supporter, said that even though the Plymouth Holderness area generally votes Democratic, he'd mostly heard from Trump supporters.
3: The Trump people were much more enthusiastic about their candidate, and they would tell me a lot. And the Clinton people just smiled and took their ballot and went to the ballot box.
7: The graffiti in the outhouse also had him thinking that Trump was headed for a win.
3: Go Trump. This country is broken. Make America great again from Rhode Island. Go Hillary. Go Trump. Build that wall. See, I'm telling you, the Trump people just were more enthusiastic.
7: Which also made Owens nervous about the final results. And which explains his occasional shout of... "Jeezum" Whenever Trump gets a few votes in a row.
3: Oh, here's a good one. Pinocchio! Pinocchio, at least we know when they're lying. He's lying. Okay, Pinocchio, that's a write-in.
7: And so, with 721 ballots cast, the results of the 2016 outhouse vote... Drum roll, please. Or should I say toilet roll, please?
3: Gary Johnson and Jill Stein together got 101 votes and Bernie got 40 write-ins. And then Trump got 165. And then we started counting Clinton, and she got 413, which means that she almost tripled what he got.
7: Owens gets a marker, writes Clinton's 413 down, and then Trump's 165 on a big sheet of cardstock to post by the side of the road.
3: I thought he had a chance.
7: (laughs) Not at the outhouse but the real election is still a few days off.
2: Coming up, the state of Connecticut joined with Massachusetts and Rhode Island to pick some clean energy projects that are meant to help the region meet its greenhouse gas emissions goals. But it's another decision over gas pipelines that has people in the industry talking. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. For months, clean energy advocates have been anxiously awaiting the results of a contest of sorts. It was a request for proposals by the three Southern New England states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, to build new projects that would help the region meet both its greenhouse gas emissions goals and its overall energy needs. When the winners were unveiled, there were some big surprises. First, the mix of wind and solar projects, totaling 460 megawatts, are largely located in southern New England. That means large wind farm projects proposed in northern Maine and a transmission plan for Canadian hydropower lost out. The other big surprise was that the state of Connecticut pulled the plug on another plan to construct more natural gas pipelines in the state. It was prompted by previous decisions in Massachusetts and New Hampshire that said it was unconstitutional to pass along the cost of building pipelines to electric customers. That would have left Connecticut ratepayers on the hook without help from their regional neighbors. This might mean the end of a big pipeline project like Access Northeast, and it raises questions about the need for more gas-fired power plants, including those that have met with local opposition in Connecticut and Rhode Island. The headlines for this read something like, New England says yes to renewables, no to natural gas. And that was good news to Greg Cunningham of the Conservation Law Foundation, who talked to WBUR in Boston.
1: In one day, I think we have essentially seen the course of New England's energy future righted.
2: But Connecticut officials are saying not so fast. Right now, New England gets about 50 percent of its power from gas. And Katie Dykes says the fuel is necessary for the region to provide reliable year-round power, even as it invests more in renewables she's been part of this process as Connecticut's deputy commissioner for energy. We sat down in her office and she told me that the decision to halt the pipelines was done to protect ratepayers in the state.
4: You know, it doesn't make sense to say that, you know, a quarter of this the region's ratepayers here in Connecticut should be taking on the full cost of of what's needed to really provide an impactful solution when others might be free riding on that.
2: What I hear you saying though, is is that there's not a change in your mind in the demand for this natural gas infrastructure. Essentially, Connecticut isn't going to be investing. And now it seems clear that the other states in New England aren't going to be investing further in some of these pipeline expansion projects. But I don't hear you saying that it's because we don't need more natural gas infrastructure. I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Well, the problem
4: certainly hasn't solved itself. The cancellation of this RFP doesn't suggest, shouldn't be interpreted, that we don't believe further solutions or further um, efforts are needed. You know, one other really important thing to point out about our approach here in Connecticut is that while this is a problem that we're facing of not having adequate gas pipeline infrastructure, to match our gas generation. There's many ways to solve the problem. And one of the ways, of course, is to you know invest in new gas pipeline capacity. Um, another is to invest in shorter-lived gas resources like liquefied natural gas that you can bring in. But you can also help address the problem by reducing your reliance on natural gas, either by Building out more types of generation, we would prioritize clean generation that doesn't run on gas, hydropower, renewables.
2: I just want to, before we move to that, ask you about whether or not some of the headlines we've seen coming out of this decision that Connecticut... Is essentially saying yes to solar, yes to wind, and and no to natural gas. I mean, that, that's one way to interpret this, right? Is there something to that that we're investing more in renewables here in the state of Connecticut, and because of the collaborative nature of this, that means we're renew we're investing more in renewables than gas moving forward in New England.
4: That's what we're doing today, and we're really proud about um, the progress that we've made with a range of different projects, uh, renewable projects, um, that will help to reduce our reliance on natural gas and will also help us to stay on track to meet our renewable portfolio commitments and our global warming solution goals, which require us to really cut significant amounts of carbon emissions from our electric and actually all of our sectors. So there's sort of a triple win that you get with investing in those kinds of clean energy resources. But that said, This issue of inadequate gas pipeline capacity is one that we're going to continue to have to monitor and work on. We often describe natural gas as the bridge. This build-out of gas generation in our deregulated market has helped us to reduce our reliance on coal and oil. But clearly, in order to get where we need to be to address the urgent carbon reduction targets in in our state, which are shared with other states in New England, the challenge now is that we're not quite off that bridge. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of different views about how far we, how far along we are <laughs> on the bridge. But as we're, we're making this progress to build out more renewable resources, of course, many of those resources are wind, solar, resources that aren't operating all the time and can't, where their performance can't really be predicted in advance so you know when the wind isn't blowing when the sun isn't shining the grid operators are relying on things like natural gas generation that can turn on and turn off really quickly to balance that renewable power and as you know we're all looking at uh, I think interested here in Connecticut we see our colleagues in Massachusetts uh, uh, really pushing forward on energy storage and those technologies to to help advance uh, the integration of of those, uh, you know, storage into the way that the grid is designed. But that's not where we are today. So we have to keep our eye on this issue of gas capacity because we owe it to our ratepayers to ensure that we have a grid that can function all year round, not just when the we have a mild winter. <laughs> sure. Um,
2: well, I mean, maybe we can talk about some of those technologies that will help us get to the other side of that bridge. We've done reporting on our show about projects in Vermont that look to put— batteries into people's homes, Tesla batteries, that can help to take down some of that that wind or solar energy at times when there's a lot of it, and then use it at times when there's less of it. But there are a number of energy storage and also energy efficiency programs that are being tried. Does a decision like this to say, okay, we're not going to build expensive gas pipelines, we are going to invest quite a bit in solar and wind and some new technologies, does this maybe shorten the bridge does this push us to this next phase a little quicker where we have to start thinking in earnest about those technologies and how we get a more distributed uh, system of creating and storing energy as opposed to the very expensive gas pipeline or even long-throw transmission projects that we need to have in the old way of delivering electricity
4: today in new england gas and renewables are tied together. <laughs> Their destiny is is linked in the grid that we have today, to the extent that the integration of more and more renewables in the absence of widely deployed storage, we're not quite there yet, uh, means that this challenge of ensuring that the gas is going to be there to balance those renewables um, in what is essentially a very gas-dependent grid today means that achieving these goals of, of a cleaner grid while maintaining reliability means that grid operators, policymakers have to continue to watch closely and think carefully about the reliability of our gas uh, generation system. Our economy is built on an expectation of 24-7, <laughs> 365 reliable electric power. And that means the integration of, of these, these renewable resources depends, at least in the, in the near term. On having a reliable gas system um, to back it up. So, and one
2: of the things that I think, you know, beyond what happened in, in, say, the courts in Massachusetts, one of the things that has been difficult, though, is that whether it's pipelines going through people's backyards or, as we've reported on, new gas fired plants that are being proposed in Rhode Island and in eastern Connecticut and in other places, they face an awful lot of opposition. Opposition from people who think, we should be investing more in renewables right now, and also just opposition from people who feel that there may be some danger to gas in their backyard. They may be worried about the property values that they have as gas goes through. When you take all these things into consideration, I wonder if the low-cost nature of natural gas that prompted this investment in the first place actually is true in 2016, 2017, 2018 New England. Like, all of the things that go into the cost of building a new power plant run by gas or new pipeline infrastructure whether or not it actually makes financial sense given all of the problems that stand in its way
4: well gas generation new gas power plants continue to be the winners in the annual capacity uh, auctions that the um, grid operator runs, ICE in New England, um, when we need new power generation in the region. It's the most efficient uh, cost-effective that's coming through. We are today in Connecticut experiencing the lowest generation rates that we've seen since 2003. And part of that is a gas story because the cost of natural, the gas commodity is so low in the country these days. So again, in a gas predominantly gas-dependent electric system, gas sets that electric price. There's a real close relationship there. But, you know, you you mentioned the siting issues, and and those are very serious issues. I, you know, sometimes hear from folks elsewhere saying, why can't you be more like Texas? Look at what they can get done in Texas. They can site anything in Texas. You know, New England, you guys are tough. But we're not Texas because a really big difference. We're a very dense region we have a lot of people living here and distributed all around our area. Connecticut and Rhode Island southern New England kind of unique uh, compared to northern New England. You know, we have a lot of transmission lines, we have a lot of gas pipelines running through our states. That makes us attractive places for power plant developers to focus on when they're looking for places to build new power generation. But some of these things, some of these uh, pipes and and lines are going through people's backyards and And it has to be part of of a successful development approach to take those relationships seriously and listen to community members and and help to communicate what value they're bringing.
2: It seems possible that Connecticut's decision to not invest in gas pipeline expansion may actually damage in some way attempts to build gas-fired plants in this region, and I guess I'm wondering if that has been taken into consideration.
4: As we've tracked this issue over the past several years, um, new gas power plants are being built, irrespective of whether new gas pipelines are coming forward.
2: How how is that going to work?
4: Gas power plants can run on oil um, as backup uh, when they can't get the gas they but need to run. That's not clean burning gas. But is it? that's the fact of what's happening today. So we've actually seen our emissions tick up. During the polar vortex in 2013 and 14, you know, in in these cold winter periods, what the grid is relying on, you know, we have more wind that's generating. That's that works well during the winter time, but it's the predominant backup power option in our market is oil and even coal.
2: So you think that that's that's going to damage our ability to get to some of our emissions goals if we don't have the gas going to these plants, but instead they're burning oil.
4: It's the challenge that we've been seeing because we have to maintain reliability, right? But again, going forward, it's like these things are moving in tandem. We have a statutory requirement to continue to cut carbon emissions. We're gonna prioritize everything that we can do to make sure that we're getting to that goal. Storage, renewables, hydro, you know, retention of of nuclear units is, is a priority here in Connecticut. That's all part of the mix, as well as aggressive investment in energy efficiency. The challenge for today is how to continue that progress in decarbonizing the grid while maintaining reliability. But it's definitely a transitional period. What the
2: state seems to be saying is producing electricity, no matter how we do it, closer to home, solves a lot of the problems.
4: We've seen the cost of solar panels coming down. I think that's probably a driver uh, in part of, of the pricing that we saw and the results from this RFP. But make no mistake, achieving this transition to a reliable, cleaner grid is going to mean investing and in building out new kinds of generation, new kinds of infrastructure in places where it might not have been before. I've often, in, in past RFPs, you know, had conversations with my counterparts in New Hampshire and Vermont and and Maine, who uh, who face a lot of the concerns from their communities about citing clean energy for the benefit of you know people in, in Southern New England. And now we're going to be having some of those conversations more and more um, here in Connecticut. Uh, we have the benefit, of course, of, of the jobs, um, you know, tax revenues and so on, reliability that you get from building out renewables closer to home. But we have to also be even more considerate. Are we um, incenting the development of those renewables in the right place? Uh, You know, we have a lot of policy priorities, not just about clean clean generation, but about retaining and preserving farmland, you know, redeveloping brownfields and landfills. And so I think that's an area that we're going to be thinking about more and more as we see the response from this RFP, um, is how do we make sure that we're able to achieve that clean energy transformation here in Connecticut? capture those benefits in a way that's harmonized with our land use uh, uh, priorities in the state.
2: Katie Dykes, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it.
4: Always great to be with you.
2: Katie Dykes served as Deputy Commissioner for Energy in Connecticut. She's moving on to a new role as a state regulatory commissioner. She'll be recusing herself from decisions about the renewable projects being built in the state. Coming up, we'll hit the trail in search of some very special trees and also the story of a remarkable woman. It's next. is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the melville charitable trust supporting the new england news collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness if you spend any time walking in the woods you'll see a lot of strange looking trees trees that are shaped by the wind or split by lightning and occasionally some twists and turns are man-made new england public radio's john Vosey has our story
0: Walking in the woods near his Putney, Vermont home, Dan Kubik discovered a most unusual tree. Top to bottom is probably about 60 feet, 70 feet maybe. That's not the unusual part. It goes up about 9 feet straight up, and then at a 90-degree angle goes out about another 8 or 9 feet before going directly up again. This two to 300-year-old sugar maple is believed to be the first Native American trail tree discovered in Vermont. Trail trees or trail marker trees were intentionally shaped by Native Americans to mark trails or to point to graves, sacred sites, or water.
1: So if a native is out hunting or going somewhere and they need to know where water is located, these trees often pointed to water sources.
0: Don Wells is with the nonprofit Mountain Stewards in Georgia. He oversees the National Trail Tree Project, an initiative to locate, document, and preserve these pieces of living history.
1: What they did is they would take a sapling and then they would bend it horizontally, lock it down with tie-downs for maybe a year or two for it to lock into that horizontal position. Then they would come back and bend up the tree vertical which would then make a pointer.
0: Wells has a database of over 2,000 trail trees in 41 states.
1: We have gone across the nation and we have interviewed the Native American elders about these trees. Now, these are very sacred to them, and for a long time they would not talk about them.
0: But Wells wants to talk about them and get them protected under federal law. He says urban development throughout New England probably destroyed many Native American trail trees. In rural New York, there are hundreds, but the one discovered by Dan Kubik in southern Vermont is one of only four in New England,
2: with others in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. That's John Vosey from New England Public Radio reporting. You might know someone who's gone out looking for themselves along the Appalachian Trail. Next year marks the 80th birthday of the 2,100-mile footpath. A third of the trail runs through New England, including its most rugged parts— Ending at the summit of Mount Katahdin in Maine. Emma Grandma Gatewood made headlines when she became the first woman to hike the entirety of the Appalachian Trail back in 1955. She was 67 years old and she wore KEDS. Writer Ben Montgomery, Emma's great great nephew, tells her story.
5: In 1955, she told her family that she was going on a walk and she left her small hometown of Gallipolis, Ohio. And journeyed to Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia. She told no one what she meant by taking a walk until she hit about Roanoke, Virginia, and she dropped a postcard in the mail to her children, saying, "When I said walk, I meant I'm hiking 2,050 miles." She's uh, you know born into poverty in southeastern Ohio. Got married at the age of 18 to a guy named P.C. Gatewood. She very quickly learned that PC had an insatiable sexual appetite. She bore him 11 kids total, and also quite the temper. He abused her to no end. Nobody remembers exactly what set the fight off. Her son Nelson, who was a teenager at the time, about 15 years old, he, he comes in and finds his father on top of his mother. He's broken her ribs. He's broken her teeth. Um, her ear is ripped from her face. Nelson sees this and grabs his father, pins his arms against his sides for long enough that Emma could run away. PC went to town and Emma eventually returned to the house. When PC came back, he was trailed by a constable or a sheriff's deputy or some keeper of the peace As soon as PC opened the screen door to go inside the house, Emma hurled a five-pound sack of flour that connected squarely with his face. She first read of the Appalachian Trail in a doctor's office in the early 50s. She had just picked up a copy of a 1949 National Geographic magazine. It was a multi-page, color photograph spread of uh, the Appalachian Trail with this very rosy picture of the trail and said, you know, anybody in decent physical shape could, quote, hayfoot, strawfoot from Georgia to Maine. This turned her on. She had always been a pedestrian. She never knew how to drive a car, so anytime she wanted to... Uh, go visit a friend. It was nothing to walk 13, 14, 15 miles. She was hung up on the idea of trying out this, what at the time was a very new footpath. She wound up having this hilarious meeting with these gangsters from Harlem on the AT in the Green Mountains of Vermont. She's hiking along, and she finds herself in severe rain. She needs a place to stay for the night, and she hikes up on this uh, lean-to beside the trail. A lean-to is just a three-sided structure. Inside the lean-to, she finds, as she describes in her diary, um, eight African-American youths and they're two white leaders from a Catholic parish in Harlem. She is going to have to hole up for the night with the kids and the and the Catholic leaders. She's in the corner, and one of the boys is laying next to her, and he keeps in his sleep throwing his arm over her. She'll move it back. He'll throw it again, and she'll move it back, and he'll throw it back over It turns out she had no idea, but um, one of the Catholic leaders wrote about this just before his death, and he said that Uh, It was 1955 in Harlem, and the gangs were fighting over every square inch of concrete. The summer was hot. It was a lot of bloodshed, maybe the most violent place in America at the time. The leader of the church said, we've got to do something about this. And so this uh, young priest got the assignment, like, I want you to identify top four honchos of each of these two rival gangs and take them on an all-expense-paid trip to the Green Mountains of Vermont so that y'all can broker peace. And those are the people that Emma wound up uh, bunking with, the eight toughest (laughs) gangsters in, in, in Harlem. When she set off, she didn't tell anybody. She thought her kids might try to stop her. She thought somebody might try to harm her on the trail. Around Roanoke, Virginia, the newspaper caught up with her. Basically, a couple of guys who maintained the trail heard that she was hiking, and they informed the the paper, and the paper shows up, and they do a, a story. From there on, just about every town that she walked through, there was a newspaper story, to the point where the United Press and the Associated Press were tracking her movements for pretty much the entirety of the last half of the trail. Maybe on a weekly basis until she got to the end, until she hit Maine, and then it was like a daily update that was running in pretty much every newspaper in the United States. She started to get annoyed by reporters. She was like, I'm done with photographs. And I think she was self-conscious in that she wasn't looking all that great at the end of a 2,000 mile walk. This one photographer pops out of the bushes or <laughs> whatever and starts taking a picture, and she was having none of it. She just she whacked him. She apologized immediately after she did it. She said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't know what's going on. And somebody brought her a lawn chair and a glass of milk and a hamburger, and she took a break and felt better about it. I think she was sort of reaching her wit's end, you know, and certainly losing her patience with the press. At 146 days after she started, she uh, climbed Mount Katahdin in Maine, and sang the first verse of uh, America the Beautiful and said I did it. There's something about Mount Katahdin in Maine. I've heard people say it's the first spot in the United States where the sun hits when it rises in the east. It's barren on top of that mountain. No trees and this incredibly strong wind that blows all the time trying to reach the crest of Mount Katahdin is like a, a sort of solitary experience. It's almost like, we're not supposed to be here. I think she was pretty overcome by like the significance of it and the aloneness of it.
2: Ben Montgomery's book, Grandma Gatewood's Walk, came out on paperback earlier this year. That story was produced by Elliot Rambeck for This Land Press. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production helped this week from Erica Mance and Kion Wolf. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.